soars above the pinion pines And we know these horses stand for something That is precious and more rare Than all the silver and the gold from them old mines So let them run Let them run Let them wild ponies run Don't you brand them, don't you break them Don't you let the killers take a single one Let them run Hi, welcome to Horse Sense 101. I'm your host, Joe Jones, Vale, Oregon's resident redneck and owner of Joe Jones Performance Horses. Horse Sense 101 is a podcast dedicated to helping you have a meaningful relationship with your horse and for them to be a willing partner in all your adventures. The podcast is available every Monday morning at 6 a.m. Mountain Time, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to join us on our Facebook group, Horse Sense 101. You can also find the podcast link, calendar, and news about our upcoming events on our webpage, www horse-sense101.com and sign up for our newsletter there as well. And if you have a moment and are so inclined, please leave a review on Podchaser. It's free and I would really appreciate it. This week we are talking with Dr. Amy McLean. Dr. McLean has had a lifelong passion for equids with long years. She grew up on a donkey and mule farm in Georgia. She has devoted her professional career to conducting donkey and mule research that focuses on improved management and well-being for these animals. Dr. McLean is an assistant professor in teaching of equine science in the Department of Animal Science at the University of California, Davis. She earned her Ph.D. from Michigan State University in the area of equine science, where she studied methods to improve working donkey welfare in Mali, West Africa. She earned her Master's of Science with a focus on reproduction physiology from the University of Georgia. She has conducted research with donkeys, mules, and hennies in many countries, publishing 30 articles with a continued focus on improving welfare for working equids, with the idea that improving their welfare will only help improve the welfare of the families they work for. In addition, She has a passion for performance equine and has coached both youth and collegiate horse judging teams to world championships at AQHA competitions. Dr. McLean remains active in the industry by serving as a board of director for several national mule and donkey organizations. In her free time, she volunteers and serves as a board of director for the Equitarian Initiative, who focus their efforts on working with equids in Central and South America. She hopes the research and information she can provide to the industry will help others with this underestimated population of equids. Thank you for joining us on Horse Sense 101, Dr. McLean. Uh, How are you this evening? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Well, it, it, it's truly an honor to have, to have, we have an honest to goodness doctor. I'm talking to a doctor. Um, and just so our audience can kind of get an idea who, who Dr. Amy McLean is, um, tell us a little bit about your background before you became a, a professional. Tell us about your, your childhood and, and, and how you grew up and, and where you came from. Well, um, 
in a nutshell, I um, grew up on a donkey and mule farm in Georgia. My parents were from the city. My father was from Atlanta, Georgia, like downtown Atlanta. And my mom was from Manhattan. And my dad introduced me to a donkey when I was a baby, just a little infant. And the donkey was a guard donkey protecting livestock, protecting cattle. And my folks were pretty spontaneous people. And he looked at my mom and said, hey, we're going to move to the country and get a donkey and mule farm. And that's exactly what they did. So I was I was really fortunate to grow up um, around horses, mules, donkeys. Our first horse, her name was Ruby. She was named after my um, dad's mom, after my grandmother. Um, she was a wonderful horse. I look back at pictures thinking about some of the things we did with her and how she put up with us. There's pictures of me riding this two-year-old horse with a halter and a lead and she's grazing and she wasn't trained until later on and she just put up with it. Um, but again, I'm very thankful for my parents and grateful that they exposed me and they introduced me to this world of equine. Um, in 1988, we had our first mule baby that was born and a mule being a cross between a male donkey, a jack and a female horse, a mare. Um, she was born and just didn't thrive when she was born. And so I was born in 1979. And so that kind of gives you a, um, an idea of how old I was in 1988. I wasn't even 10 years old yet. And I was out helping my city slicker parents treat and try to get this mule on a path of, of good health. And we kept asking our veterinarian at the time, his name was Dr. Collins, great older veterinarian, um, you know, all these questions. Well, why is she not doing well? Why is she so sick? You know, but why is she still nursing and upright? And, and why is she still alive? And he didn't know. So it was in 1988 that I realized there was a lot of questions that we didn't know about mules specifically. And um, growing up on this so-called mule and donkey farm, and the farm expanded from a small four-acre farm, then later on to a 20-acre farm, which I know is not big in terms of some ranches or thousands of acres, but for us, it was pretty big. Um, it grew into this passion and eventually a family business. My father was a, um, he was a welder. My mom was an artist and college professor herself. And they went from their regular jobs to then devoting everything to the family farm and breeding and training mules, donkeys. And then we also um, had walking horses, Tennessee walking horses that were sold to the field trial industry. And then also to a lot of weekend recreational riders. So it grew from, a couple animals to in the heyday of our farm we had as many as five donkeys we were standing at stud 20 brood mares 40 to 60 head of animals and um i went to the university of georgia for my undergraduate degree um which focused on equine science and then um i was given an assistantship to actually coach a dairy judging team because i had horse judging experience and i thought well it's a good opportunity so i did that and got my master's which focused on reproduction physiology because I always had an interest in reproduction because of our, our breeding business and then also having that foal back in 1988. 
from there, um, after my master's, um, I took a little bit of time off. I went and rode with different horse trainers, lived a little bit. Um, and then I went on to um, work in the industry. I worked for a feed company. A lot of people may be familiar with Perina Mills, which is has a lot of research behind um, the formulas that they generate and they, they test all of their products actually on their own farm where a lot of nutrition companies will pay for studies at universities. The other interesting fact about Prina Mills having this interest in long-eared equids, um, it was the its first formulation, the first feed was called Clean Oats, which you may recognize as Omeline. And that was created to feed mules that were pulling barges on the Mississippi River in St. Louis. And their first sales award was actually giving to salespeople. Um, and it was an iron mule. And the feed was supposed to be so good that a mule could hold an iron kettle up by their tail. So, so anyway, my first job was working for Prina Mills as a um, nutritionist, as an equine specialist. I worked with high-end equine farms, Olympians, large vet clinics that had any type of metabolic issues with horses, either obese horses, starved horses, um, different cases like that. Um, worked with them for a while. And then I went on, um, I always wanted to do my PhD or either go to vet school, but they kept throwing money at me to do research. And so that was exciting. And then in 2006, I went to Michigan State on a fellowship from the United States Department of Agriculture to look at improving livestock production in Mali, West Africa. And Mali, West Africa is a landlocked country. Um, it's also considered to be the fourth poorest country in the world. When I um, interviewed with Michigan State for this position, because it was an interview type position because of the... Um, monetary value of the um, assistantship. At first, I had suggested working in, on a dairy project, thinking they would be interested in food security and human nutrition and health. But I mentioned, of course, my love for donkeys and said, you know, there are about 2 million donkeys there. And we know very little about their needs. And that's what they were interested in. And so that really opened up an amazing opportunity to study an animal that I'm so passionate about and so interested in and um, went to my first um, out of state um, or sorry out of country um, in 2007 to Mali and then from there I've worked in about 26 countries trying to improve the well-being of um, what we call working equids um, from a global standpoint there's about 100 million equine and equine include horses mules donkeys also include zebras but a majority of those animals about 80 percent of those are actually in a working capacity in a developing country so there's only about 20 percent there that fall into this performance um, category or uh, recreation category and that other 80 percent they're working for the world's poorest most resource challenged um, people in the world and their lifeline so I've devoted most of my research and interest into how to improve their welfare, their well-being. Um, we've done studies from nutrition to exercise, phys, behavior, training um, type type research focuses. So, yeah, in a, in a short roundabout way, that's kind of my background. So, so your passion really is is for the for the long-eared uh, friends. Uh, that that's your passion and and you have uh, 
And, and folks, I think it's important that people know you're not just a well-educated doctor. You're one heck of a horsewoman. I've, I've watched, uh, <laughs> I've watched Amy ride. She rides as good as any man on the planet. Don't, don't let her kid you. She doesn't. Um, she's very talented. Um, and, and I believe you have several world championships under your belt. So she's not just an amateur folks. Um, having said that, you know, tell us a little bit about that part, the, the horsemanship part of, of your journey. Uh, growing up in the horse and mule business must have taught you quite a bit about, about how, to, how to, to be in unity with, with horses, donkeys, mules. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, Joe. I mean, I've always looked at the relationship with any equine horse, donkey, or mule as, you know, it's truly a partnership that you develop. And there's pictures of me when I'm two and a half, three years old on this at mare that I was talking about earlier, Ruby. And, you know, she's grazing and I'm sitting on her back, bareback, halter lead. And this mare's not even trained. And just developing that feel, the partnership with, with any equine, I think is so essential to how you, you go forward and understanding that animal. And, and again, I, I just, I paid so much gratitude and just so grateful for my parents opening those doors and growing up literally on the back of a horse. Um, if there's parents out there, I think the best thing that you can do is, is get your child a horse, a donkey, start out on a donkey, if they're little, you know, and then let them progress up because it just, it teaches you so much about being, um, I think a good human, but going back to that partnership, um, and this is partly how my folks transitioned from having careers to them being farm people um, was my dad learned early on that he could sell mules and make a lot of money off of them because of me riding and showing them. And they thought, well, if this little girl is riding this mule and it's performing and doing quite well, you know, then I need to purchase it and take it home and trail ride or do whatever. Um, but what a lot of those people overlooked and they didn't understand is they didn't understand the bond and the trust that I had built with that animal from spending hours on end with just going out and petting it, sitting with it, getting to know that horse, that mule or, or whatever it was. Um, and that's what I really enjoy doing. And even to this day, I was, I was at my barn earlier riding my, my mule that I have and I spent probably a good 10 minutes just, just petting him and just kind of looking at him just in awe of what a magnificent creature he really is and how special he is. And I think that's something that people, a lot of times they, they underestimate with, with any equine is that it's not a machine. It's not a four wheeler. You don't turn it on. You don't turn it off. They do have emotions. They do feel pain. They are a sentient being and they're essentially your dance partner. And some dance partners, you step on their toes and other ones you don't. But even from a veterinary standpoint, I work with a lot of students that want to go on and be veterinarians. I work with a lot of veterinarians around the world and you need to understand their behavior, their body language, either on top of them or on the ground to have, I think, a positive relationship or, or to make any changes in that animal's well-being. So would you say to be fair that as, as a young girl, your ability to connect with horses, um, what was based on you not having an agenda, you're just, just a pure love for horses and, and an open heart 
and the horses just respond to that, right? Yeah, I think that's a really eloquent way to describe it, Joe. It just, it was, it was so pure and honest in the beginning. Um, and you know, there's sometimes where competitions can taint that relationship. Um, you know, competitions, I, they do drive me. I'm a competitive person. But what I enjoy most is truly developing that relationship. And I learned that at a very early age, you know, before I was super competitive. So if you were to pick the, the, one, the one most important thing that you remember, the lesson, your, your biggest lesson from, from growing up on, on the farm, what do you think that that lesson would be if you were to 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 put a a label on it? Oh, that's that's a hard one. I, I have so many ideas running through my brain right now on, on lessons learned on the farm because there's so many of them. I, I think one is just having respect for the for equine, just having respect for them and recognizing that. Not every horse, not every mule, not every donkey is going to be suitable for what maybe your aspirations are. And so I think it's only fair and right to the horse, to yourself, that you find the right animal for the right job. And asking a horse or a mule to, to do something they're not bred to do, they're not, their confirmation is not in a line to do, I think is something that's really important. I think that's oftentimes where we see the relationship going bad is where we have these expectations that are not realistic. And so that kind of comes back to managing the human's expectations. I mean, horses and mules, donkeys, are they're very trainable. It's amazing the relationship they've had with man. They've truly developed human society from the beginning of their domestication like no other animal has but when we ask them to do certain things that they're not capable of doing i think that's then where that relationship goes sour <clears throat> i i have to share this story um my my hero is a guy named buster welch and oh, yeah. he was <clears throat> he was interviewed a couple of years ago on the cowboy channel um and and a, another very famous horse trainer uh, named Larry Reeder asked, asked Mr. Welch um, if he was to do anything differently in his career, um, what that would be. And, and Buster's answer was that he would have been a lot more selective in the horses that he trained. He said when he was a young man, he thought way too much of his own ability. And he thought that he could make any horse a, a cutting horse. And he said he really did a disservice to many horses that that should not have been trained for that that had better uses and, and and i think you know that that's what you point out is a very very valid reason why a lot of these relationships go bad is we're asking these horses to do more than they're actually physically capable of yes yeah and that's why we see the breakdowns that's why we see the injuries that's why we see the stereotypies when we've, you know, confined them to a space. The, the list just goes on and on and on. So growing up, obviously your parents were a big influence. What, what, other, what other influences would you say, um, if you were to name names, 
what was the biggest or, or some of the influences on your development of, of horsemanship? Are, are, are you pretty much self-taught or did you have some guides along the way? Yeah, that's a great question, Joe. Um, I've ridden with a lot of different great trainers. Um, the fun thing about showing mules, it's kind of like doing a decathlon or I, I don't want to use the word pentathlon right now because it's kind of a sore subject in the equine community. But when you show mules, what's really fun about them and the reason why I've stuck with the mules compared to getting a horse and kind of doing the horse thing, not there's anything wrong with that, but is the challenge of constantly challenging yourself to be a better equestrian, a better athlete with that animal. Um, when you go to a mule show, our, our big kind of granddaddy of all mule shows is in Bishop, California. And that show is truly an endurance race because you'll see the same mule competing in English classes, dressage, Western pleasure, raining, driving, jumping in a multitude of events where our horse industry, and again, a part of this goes back to human selection and trying to you know, select the right horse for the right job to meet our demands has become very specialized, good or bad. Um, so you have a horse, you might just go to the hunter jumper circuit. It's just a jumper. It's just a hunter, but usually they're not doing both at the mule show. They're going to do both. And then they're going to turn around and do raining the next day. So with that being said, um, I bought my first mule. This is kind of embarrassing, but also funny to admit, um, I bought my first mule when I started my master's at Georgia because the cheapest way to finance a $10,000 mule, and that was what I paid for him back in 2000, was actually through student loans versus going to the bank. And um, so it was a big inspiration for getting my, um, my master's. But anyhow, um, in order to be competitive, you had to ride with multiple trainers. And so back in Georgia, I rode with an all-around Appaloosa quarter horse trainer by the name of Herm Sherwin, who had numerous Congress world titles to his name. And, and the apps at that time were a little bit in that same boat of they still need to be versatile, but it was usually just in one discipline, just on the English side or the Western side. So, so many days a week, I rode with Herm to improve um, the Western division, showmanship, trail, pleasure. We kind of approached training. Um, and then I rode with um, another trainer. Um, she's just a few years older than me that also, um, Grew up very humbly in the horse industry, but her name was Stephanie Parker Cummings. And I went once a week for a jumping lesson with her. And um, and then at various points, I would pull in a dressage trainer to get some dressage training. Um, when I moved to Michigan, to Michigan, some more doors opened up there and it was really incredible. Um, I was able to ride with some really world-class, again, trainers. Um, on the AQHA circuit. And I rode with um, a big hunter jumper trainer for AQHA numerous world championships with them by the name of David Warner and learned even more on the English side. And then rode with another Western trainer, um, Trish Walters, who trained a lot of um, horsemanship, showmanship, world champions, youth and amateur. Another person throughout my career that's been really influential um, is um, a, a great, great longtime friend by the name of Julie Kennedy. And Julie's out of South Carolina, but she's also lived all over, worked for different trainers. And Julie's had multiple world champion paint horses, Palomino horses, um, but she took a liking to the mules and 
first mule I showed that did really well in the all around circuit was a mule named Mr. Ike that she had trained and she was light years ahead of everyone else on the East coast. Um, and then um, she had my next gray mule. His name was WC. He's a playboy. And she's also, she put some of the foundation on my current mule that I have um, Greystone silhouette. She started him and had him for a year or two before he came out West and then um, was in training with another and still is um, another really influential multiple world champion by the name of Tim Phillips in Idaho. Some other trainers that I've ridden with that also had a, a positive impact was Leslie Lang in um, Greeley, Colorado, another AQHA professional horsewoman, um, multiple titles in Western riding, trail, pleasure, hunter under saddle. She's an incredible horsewoman. But I've I remember something my dad told me. I was trying to learn how to play tennis. And he was like, Amy, if you want to play tennis, you go and you play tennis with the best tennis player out there. And you learn from the best. And so I just, I took that same attitude and riding with these different people that had a great background. Um, not only had they won a lot, but they were great teachers. So there's a lot of trainers out there. They can train, but they're not good. They're not good teachers. They can't tell the person how to push the buttons or where to push them. So I selected and, and rode with people that were good with the human as well as the horse side, the equine side. And a lot of these people, um, if you Google any of them, they'll come up with, you know, a huge list of accolades. Um, they were also humble enough to accept a person that was riding a mule. You know, they've got $100,000 horses in their barn, multiple world champions on so many different levels, imported horses. But again, they were open to training the girl with her mule. And they gave me just as much respect as if I had a horse with them. So I know it's kind of a long answer, but um, there's been a lot of really influential and wonderful people along the way that have helped me continue to rise and, and get to a, a higher level. And, and there's been even um, a handful here in California as well that I've ridden with, but I, I just try to learn as much as I can. I'm a lifelong student. And I think once you stop learning and you stop progressing, it's hard to, it's hard to get better. And I love that challenge of riding with all these different trainers. Yeah. I, I, I wanted everyone to kind of, kind of get a, how, how true it is that the, the way you get better, you know, don't, don't be so, don't be so uh, arrogant as to think you have it figured out and that you can, you can learn and you can learn from anyone. Um, and I, I'm with you, Amy, if you're going to take lessons, um, take lessons from, from the best, uh, years ago, um, I, I'm, a, I'm kind of a golf fan and, and when I was young, one of my favorite players was a guy named Lee Trevino from Texas. And, and they asked Lee Trevino, you know, who his golf coach was. And, and Lee Trevino says, well, I don't have one. And then they said, well, what do you mean you don't have a golf coach? And, and Lee said, well, and at this time, Lee was the number one player in the world. He says, well, why would I take lessons from somebody that can't beat me? Um, and that was kind of arrogant on his point, on his part. But the lesson there is, is that if you're going to take lessons, find someone who can challenge you 
and, and can help you make a transformation. Your neighbor down the road that has horses probably isn't going to give you the same quality of instruction as the professional trainer, you know, who's, who's got several students, whose students are performing well. Um, you know, maybe, you know, not everybody can be a world champion, but you can certainly watch uh, very talented people all the time and, and just watch how the animals respond to them and, and know that, that there's something special there. Seek, I think you should just seek those people out and learn what they have to teach. Yeah, I, I can't agree more with you, Joe. Um, actually, I had a dressage lesson yesterday and um, I was the the coach, the trainer I was riding with was in the World Equestrian Games and Olympics and I think it was 2012. And um, she was actually in the Paralympics and dressage, but she is amazing. Anybody who can ride in Andalusian the way this lady can ride and she's so positive and so upbeat and you know, we spent an hour working on upward and downward transitions. And again, like you said, you might think, well, somebody at your level that's, you know, done these various competitions and been successful. Why are you, why are you working on the basics? But you can always work on the basics and improve. And, you know, it was really helpful for improving the balance of my mule that was started out of the lesson doing a little bit of stumbling here and there. And, you know, we've got world-class footing. So it wasn't the footing. Um, and by the end of the lesson, just working on some of these different transitions, you know, he's standing upright and his body position is in the right place. And, and it was so fun and it was amazing to, to reach that point. And um, so I, I think, yeah, trying to always improve is just essential for your relationship. And, and, you know, your horse will get bored doing the same thing all the time. So I think it's important to challenge them as well. I think they enjoy it. Of course. Um, and I, I also know that that you're you're not just a talented writer. You're a t you're a talented teacher. I mean, you're a you're a college professor for crying out loud. So they 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 hired you, I'm sure, down there at UC Davis to to not just do research, but you have to do some teaching um, and not just horses. You have to teach students. Um, talk to us a little bit about the principles that guide how you teach people. I know that's a wild, that's a weird off the wall question, but no. I, I think, um, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a valuable thing to get some insight on is because it will give us some insight on what to look for in a teacher. Yeah, I, I do think you're right, Joe. Um, I, you know, the way I learn things, I learn by doing, you know, there's different ways of learning. Some people learn visually, some learn, you know, by tactile, putting their hands on things. Some learn from auditory. I like to combine all of those methods. And, um, you know, we were really challenged in the past year when we were online and you missed that human interaction. And I even had to develop labs that were online and still try to get those important messages across to students on how to take a blood sample, how to wrap a leg, how to do a limb dissection, things like that. But um, I, I learned by doing. And if I'm helping train our future veterinarians or our future members of the equine community from being a breeding manager to maybe a horse trainer, a, a chiropractor, you know, I want them to have the tool set that they've been exposed to a lot of different things 
and they can take this information they can actually apply it and not just regurgitate on an exam a b or c i don't want them to memorize the information i want them to be able to learn it and apply their their um what they're learning so i use a lot of um visual aids a lot of videos um if i can do hands-on labs we'll do a hands-on lab um but learning by doing it is really my motto, um, the type of testing I do in my students are case-based studies. Um, so they'll get a scenario of, you know, this horse is exhibiting X, Y, Z, the owner said it's, you know, it's been behaving in this way. Here's some pictures. And it, I think it encourages students to use critical thinking to stop and analyze the situation, use the knowledge that they have, and then actually apply that knowledge. Because when you walk in a vet clinic, there's not A, B, or C in what's wrong with your horse. And your horse speaks to you in a different language. So, I, you know, a lot of it's very behavior-based as well. Behavior applies across all disciplines and all the equine courses I teach. Um, just to give you an idea of the different courses that I teach, um, teaching is actually my main emphasis at UC Davis, but I love doing research. So I always do research because again, the research applies what I'm teaching and it either that theory, it works or it doesn't. It's the, it's the ultimate way of testing what I'm teaching. And then I can take that back to the classroom. Um, but I teach an equine nutrition course, equine exercise physiology, equine behavior and welfare, um, an equine production course that's a short snap shot of all of those different courses wrapped into one with hands-on labs. Um, I teach equine reproduction and then I teach um, an equine marketing class and the marketing class kind of ties in all of this information and exposes students and introduces them to people that are in various facets of the equine industry because they get all this knowledge and not everyone's going to make it to vet school or not everyone at the end will want to be an equine veterinarian. So what else can they do? So that introduces them to ideas they can do. We also talk about how to run a business. Um, we look at making sales flyers, videos, and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a very unique position at Davis. Uh, most universities, their equine professors are teaching one strict area where they've probably done 20 years of research just in nutrition or muscle biology for exercise phys or maybe spermatogenesis for reproduction. But I get to teach all those classes. So it's fun. Um, and it always, again, challenges me. So I'm constantly trying to learn new things, the latest information to share. That's so awesome. Um, th thanks for weighing in on that. Um, don't forget to check out and become a member of our Facebook group, Horse Sense 101. Keep in contact with me on Instagram at Joe underscore Horse Sense 101. And go to our webpage, www.horse-sense101.com. While you are there, sign up for our newsletter for information about upcoming shows, events, and information on the release of You and Your Heart Horse. And if you have a chance, I would appreciate it if you would give us a review on Podchaser. Uh, what, um, here's another off the wall question for you. Um, what's the biggest lesson uh, that you've learned from working with, with mules? 
Um, I, I know they're different. Um, I'm not, a, I'm not a mule trainer. So I, all I know is that they are different, but I don't know how and why. Um, speak to that a little bit, because I know, I know they're different. Um, and, and those of us that don't have mules, well, I guess I do have a mule, but he's, he's only like 25 inches tall right now. Um, so he, he doesn't tip really, he doesn't count as a, as a mule, but I guess he does in a way. Um, talk to us a little bit about what working with mules of some of the lessons that they've taught you. Yeah. And that kind of gets back to why I have a mule and I don't have a horse. (laughs) Um, I just, I love the mules. Um, I love their personalities. I enjoy how they don't like everybody. They don't get along with everyone. And that being said, they're not for everybody. Um, I was recently at the American Association of Equine Practitioners annual convention, um, which is the home body association for equine vets around the world. It's the world's largest equine vet um, association. And they just had their convention in Nashville, um, Tennessee. I was speaking with um, a veterinarian who I've worked with some in developing countries, specifically in small communities in Mexico. And um, Dr. Keith um, Latson is actually, if you watch any of the big races, like the Kentucky Derby, the Breeders' Cup, he's kind of the, the go-to person, veterinarian, to speak about those races, speak about thoroughbreds. And he came up to me because we had a special session that was dedicated to advances in mule and donkey medicine that I chaired at this recent convention. And, and Keith came up to me, he's like, you know, he's like, every time a mule comes through one of the clinics and clinics in terms of, um, they run a, um, a, a clinic in the Yucatan of Mexico and then another one in, um, um, I think in Ecuador where they provide free vet care and education. Anyway, point being, he was like, every time a mule comes to one of our clinics, he's like, I get really nervous, you know? And I looked at this veterinarian that I have so much respect for. And again, he was the, the face, the role model for, I, I believe the, the thoroughbred industry, and I was like, Keith, I was like, you work with thoroughbreds. You work with these big stallions at the Kentucky Derby that are like breathing fire, bouncing off the wall. So excited to go run a race. I'm like, and you think a mule is scary. <laughs> he was like, oh yeah. He's like, the mules are different. And I'm just, I'm kind of dumbfounded, like looking at him and thinking, are, are they really that different? But you know, Joe, they are. And um and it really brought it into perspective for someone I have a lot of respect for. That's a great veterinarian that works with, you know, these amazing athletes, a, a thoroughbred that's full of energy and power and strength, but he's scared of the mule that walks into a clinic, you know, which a clinic being a soccer field in the Yucatan of, of Mexico. And the reason being is because mules react differently than horses or donkeys. So when a donkey gets really scared, they're, um, initial reaction is to freeze kind of like a rabbit that gets very scared and that that comes from where they evolve from they evolve from a desert so in a desert food is limited water is limited so when you get scared of something you're going to freeze and you're not going to flee and run away horses evolved of course from a swamp then as the land got dry they were more a plains animal so when they got scared they would flee they would run away the mule takes both of these behaviors and combines them and they're extremely strong. 
So you have this animal, you're not exactly sure how they're going to react. Are they going to freeze? Are they going to run away? Are they going to lean into you? Um, they're extremely agile. You can stand at their shoulder and they can easily kick you, paw you. Um, their, their strength is, is just amazing. The other thing that mules do, which I think is quite different than horses and even donkeys, is their ability to reason. They are sitting there reasoning with you. How can I not stand here? How can I leave? How can I not do the task at hand? And, um, and a lot of times just some of the most basic procedures, like taking a heart rate, a temperature, doing a blood sample or administering any type of injection could be really challenging because that little bitty prick to them makes them react different than a lot of times a horse or the donkey. So so they're interesting anomaly. And I will say mules are not for everybody because they do have this ability to reason and outthink the human partner. But when you do have that really good bond and when people do work with them and they come to an agreement on some of these different um, procedures, um, I think that bond to me is so strong. Where I think horses are very forgiving, they put up with inexperienced riders. They're more willing to maybe, um, you know, just give in to what the situation is. Where the mule's going, nope, I'm not going to go over that jump. I'm going to go around it unless you give me a good reason to go through it. So it really makes you a better, I think, equestrian. It makes you a better veterinarian. It makes you a better behaviorist, a better horse person in general, if you can work with a mule. But again, they're not for everybody. Because they're constantly thinking about, how can I not do this? <laughs> Why should I do this? And so you as that person, you have to be a step ahead of them going, you should do this because I'm asking you to do this. And let's do this together. So it's a different partnership. And some people, they, they don't want to have that partnership. So sorry, that's so, a long answer. But I, no, no, it's, it, it, it's, it's fascinating, I think. So there, there's, there's obviously something about your personality and your approach that um that you work on constantly to facilitate that relationship i mean because it's a it's a human tendency i think to be impatient uh, we you know we want what we want and we don't want to explain ourselves um so is it do you think it's it's helped you with patient being patient and with maybe finding different ways to explain things Yes, I, that's that's an awesome analogy of that whole um, response I just gave. Teaches you a lot about patience, Joe, and it teaches you a lot about working, especially with people with different personalities, um, different learning styles, and even people that have different learning abilities. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, I've worked in about, I don't know, 25, 26, 27 countries. I've worked in a lot of different places. And, you know, the, usually the question is, oh, that's so cool. How many languages do you speak? And I'm like, I speak one English, barely. <laughs> but you know what? I don't have to speak all those different languages because the main person or object that I'm working with is the mule or the donkey. And I understand mule and donkey language. And because... I'm able to interact and communicate with them, then I can communicate with the people that are working with those animals, even if it's through a translator or just my reactions and behavior with that animal that speaks 
so loudly and even internationally to address and then overcome the different language barriers that there might be. And um, there is a lot of patience that goes into working a mule. And, and that's again, why I really enjoy them is that, that bond, that trust, that partnership that you develop with them. And not to say that you don't do that with, with great horses too, because I, I know you do, but I, I think the horses are more forgiving in that younger rider or more novice rider and, the, and they take care of them. Now, not to say that there's not mules carrying tourists every day down in the Grand Canyon, but a lot of that's because of their sure-footedness and, you know, they can be understanding, but we're also, we're not asking those mules to do a lot. Um, they serve well as pack animals and that's essentially kind of a pack animal role for them and that. And that's where a lot of people then go, oh, well, I want a mule. I rode one in the Grand Canyon or I rode one in this country and it took care of me. And it's like, yeah, you weren't also asking it to do much. So exactly, exactly. So, I mean, obviously there's differences in training, training mules. Are there, are there totally different techniques or, or do you just have to be much more precise? Do you think? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think we, oftentimes we want to make them out to be so different, but they learn the same way horses do. There's, there's not a different cognitive response to when a mule is in the learning process. It's just that you have to be, like you said, more precise. And you may have to continue to go over that concept multiple times. Certain things they'll learn very quickly. They're like, okay, you know, I can be saddled. I'm not going to buck. Not a problem. But then you might go to another step of the learning process, such as maybe stopping or turning, and they're more resistant to that. And some of that is, again, their tendency to fight versus flight. Um, it's easier to train a horse because I have that flight mechanism and they've got the energy of wanting to go forward. The mule has part of the energy of wanting to go forward and then part of the energy of the donkey going, I'm not expending energy, I'm sulling up. So you may have to continue to ask, continue to ask until you get what you want. And where most people go wrong training mules is they stop before they've gotten the response that you want. So then you're actually training them not to do whatever that is. Um, you're reinforcing the wrong behavior. And that can be a real challenge, right? Um, yes. I, I, I know that it may, it may look like, you know, I've, I've watched I've watched some people training mules and, and, and they have to be fairly aggressive at times and at other times, nothing, but at times they have to be fairly persistent and fairly aggressive and then be wise enough to quit when they get the response. And I think that's, I know that would be a challenge for me. Um, the, the getting all, all in the heat of contest and then uh, getting, getting, getting the answer of yes. Okay. I'll do that. And then, being mature enough to stop asking at that point uh, would be it would be a test I, timing is so critical and important in any type of training if you're training your dog your well I don't know a lot of people train cats but I think it'd be really important cognitively even if you're training your cat but even with horses timing is everything and your great trainers have impeccable timing and that timing is when to stop asking or to reward the horse, reward the mule, as soon as they respond to the stimuli. 
But that's the problem with the mules, because again, you go back to that fight response. You got to push through that. A mule's natural response, a lot of times when you put your leg on them, is not to move away from the leg. So, so horses generally learn by something we call negative reinforcement. And I so wish they never termed this term negative reinforcement because you think negative, you automatically think bad, right? But basically this concept is you apply a pressure and then they respond and you take away that pressure. So if you're asking your horse to go forward, you'd put both legs on your horse to squeeze, or you might use your voice as a secondary reinforcer and say, walk, trot, lope, you know, whatever, whatever the command is and the, and the behavioral response you want. But the key is, is in rewarding that horse by removing that pressure, removing your legs, not keeping them constantly there, or they're moved to mean a different, they're maybe moved to a different position to ask the horse's body to be somewhere. But anyway, the, the basic concept of negative reinforcement, we apply a stimuli and then we remove that. And that's where the negative comes from is subtracting, not being brutal, not being abusive, but removing that stimuli because you get the right behavioral response. A young rider, a person doesn't have a lot of experience working with a horse, a mule, donkey, whatever it is. They don't always know when to remove that stimuli, like pulling on the lead, asking a horse to walk forward. They're still pulling on the lead and the horse is walking and they're like, what am I doing? Horses are usually good and they'll keep walking. The mule, they're going to sit there and look at you and go, nope, I'm not moving because you have pressure on the lead and I took a step forward, but you never rewarded me and released or subtracted that pressure. So that's where most people don't have, I think, the tenacity or the endurance to not give in to a mule when they don't respond to the stimuli. And I think a lot of times people do look at maybe some of the trainers that are more successful and they see their methods as maybe being too aggressive or um, overused, but they don't understand they're trying to get a response and they can't stop until that response is received. Um, speak if you would a little bit about, uh, I have a, I have a running, a running debate in my head about horse whispering. I have been accused of being a horse whisperer and, and, and I vehemently deny it. Um, but I, I do believe that you can develop a relationship with a horse. So if you would discuss communication with your horse and, and you, I also know you have, uh, you have, some some information on the three we uh, on three reasons why understanding horse is so important. Um, I, I'm just chuckling because I'm going. What were my three reasons? <laughs> <laughs> um, but just in yeah, general, this is a test. I know. Oh boy, what have I said? When and where? Um, just in general, in horse communication, I, I will say. Something that's really, I think, positive about the whole movement behind horse whispering, natural horsemanship, it really has shaped the way that people interact with horses. And it's changed the relationship, regardless if people can communicate at a, at a different level um, compared to others. I went two years ago to Thailand to to meet two guys that were grooms at the Thai Polo Club um, because the owner of the club brought me there to meet with these grooms these guys that worked with the polo ponies on a regular basis because they claimed that they could actually telepathically communicate with the horses 
and tell the owner, tell the veterinarians, tell the trainers what they were thinking and why they were thinking that. And, you know, I'm, I'm open to any type of communication that might be there. I mean, I personally cannot communicate in that form, but who's to say that somebody doesn't have a higher ability to communicate maybe non-verbally or maybe verbally with an animal. I mean, I, I think that's something maybe some people are gifted with, but more importantly, the, the greatest thing about natural horsemanship, horse whispering, and again, how it's been glamorized by Hollywood and, and different movies, it did change the approach that people have taken to training horses. And our methods of training horses goes back to when horses were domesticated, and I will throw in a, a little thing for the donkeys. Donkeys were actually domesticated before horses were about a thousand years before that. We know that from different tombs and archaeological sites. But again, the way to harness this big animal, and that's why we've had such a positive relationship with, with horses, donkeys, whatever, is because we've been able to harness their energy to our needs for our benefit, not maybe the horse's benefit. And the first bit that was ever made was actually made out of an antler. But it was very early on that we learned that we could alter their behavior by controlling them in different ways. And then it was the Greeks that thought, hey, let's put horses in a round pen and, and interact with them in that method. And the Scythians looked at actually castrating horses to, again, alter that behavior. So we would have this improved relationship. I think it was the late 1700s when the first book was actually written on training horses, which came from the school of dressage. And that went back to how to use horses again for warfare. But if we could control the movement of the horse and make it more exact, then we were going to have an advantage in war over other civilizations and communities. And, and I think it's important to point out too, in the Renaissance period is when people started looking at horses, thanks to great artists like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, the horse is this magnificent being and how its anatomy was really important. And taking this idea of biomechanics, anatomy, form to function, how a horse is made, I think all of that from running the horse around in a round pen with the Greeks to putting an antler bit in its mouth to the Chinese that invented the first stirrup that made it easier to ride horses to castrating horses to all of this is built up to this idea finally of this idea of horse whispering and natural horsemanship that we need to work with this horse we need to take these philosophies we need to understand their physiology their behavior and mold that into this partnership so again, a kind of long-winded answer to what do I think about communication and, and, and horsemanship and, and horse whispering. I just, I think it's important to base your reactions and that relationship off of their behavior and their body language um, versus just being a very dominant relationship, which was very, um, I, I think, prevalent for, for a long period of time in how humans interacted with horses versus working with the horse. So would you, would you say it's a fair statement that really, while it might seem like a gift, if you put your mind to it, anyone can learn to communicate with horses, that it's, that it's a learned skill. 
um, as much as, as anything, not necessarily you have to be born a horse whisperer. You'll never get it. I, I, I like to think that it can be, you can learn it. Yeah, I, I agree, Joe. I do think you can learn um, how to interact with horses. Um, again, just based on people's different personalities, excuse me, and demeanor. I think you can learn this, but can you apply it? That's a little bit different. You know, it's just like some people are better at working in a lab, doing a very monotonous um, repetition type job. Others are better working with their hands, maybe doing woodwork. You know, there, there's different aptitudes that we're able to, I think, capitalize on or, or shape and mold and become better at. But I think if you look back at some of the, the teachings of people like Tom Dorrance and, um, and Ray Hunt and things like that, you know, they talk about the horse's body language and movement and, you know, where the legs are and moving, moving the front. And those are basic principles that we can teach people. Now, can they go and apply it themselves? I, I think that's gonna vary, but I think we can teach them to interpret that behavior, their body language, and then try to understand that better and, and how the horse is gonna respond. Or, or maybe from my point of view, oftentimes is why the horse is behaving that way and is there a medical problem and how do we fix that? And, and that's, that's really, really important. I think um, a lot of what I think is deemed bad behavior on horses um, is in fact bad behavior on horses, but there's also a great deal of it is a natural pain response. And, and because they don't speak English or Thai or, or any other language they speak horse, you know, how, how do we learn to, to recognize that, that communication from them is, is really critical, I think. Yeah, it, it really is, Joe. And that's been, like I said, my research has been all over. It's, it's fascinating the, the various opportunities I've gotten to do and learn about all these different aspects of equine from A to Z with a lot of the different research I've done. But here recently, I, I have taken a huge interest in looking at pain behavior, especially in mules and donkeys, because we believe it's harder to distinguish compared to horses. But that's still a behavior and that behavior goes back to the very innate understanding of a horse and why a horse is a horse and behaves the way it does. And I think that's where you have to understand where they evolve from and how they respond to different things, how we shape that behavior. And then when we are trying to shape their behavior, why they don't respond in a certain way. Is it pain or is it they don't understand our stimuli, our reinforcers? Or is it because maybe, again, the expectations are too high, just like everybody that goes to school, we're not all going to be an aerospace engineer, we might not have, you know, that the mindset for that, and maybe we're, we're more an artist and want to do watercolor. So, you know, it's the same thing with the horse and just trying to understand why we're getting that behavior when we do. So are, are you finding, are you finding some physiological markers that are different from horses that you can measure to, to see if, uh, if, if mules and donkeys are in fact in distress? Yeah, that's a great question. So yes, um, there's some really interesting physiological markers, everything from blood markers to even heart rate and respiration, which is just amazing. Um, 
So we did a study a few years ago, um, a group of wild donkeys that had been captured in Death Valley. And there was interest for a stable side um, lab kit that would um, monitor an acute phase protein produced by the liver called serum amyloid A. And my colleague at the time had had some health problems himself and actually had an infection in his bones. And they, um, cause he'd had a hip replacement, hip replacement went wrong. So they took a blood sample and looked for this marker, serum amyloid A, it was extremely elevated. It shows there's inflammation or infection because the liver responds in that way. There's another blood marker called fibrinogen that will also elevate if there's inflammation, so a swelling, edema, or if there's infection. Um, or so, so anyway, fibrinogen is generally tested from a horse, a donkey, or a mule if we think there's swelling or maybe there's infection, because again, their behaviors change. So we're trying to start to diagnose what's wrong with that animal. Well, this specific marker, again, because of my colleague's personal experience, he said, hey, let's, let's try this in a donkey. I bet it's different in a donkey than a horse. At the same time on the market, the stable side lab test kit had come out where you could take a blood sample, test them 10 minutes and see if this is elevated or not. So point being, if we can test something that has a quicker response to infection or inflammation compared to a marker over say a couple days will eventually elevate, this could be very useful for a veterinary practice or an owner standpoint. So we had a group of donkeys that were being removed from, um, from Death Valley. And um, so we took blood samples, nasal swabs, and one of the parameters we were looking at was serum amyloid A. And we were trying to um, compare that to infectious diseases that the donkeys may have. Because again, the donkey evolving from the desert has a stoic response to pain. A lot of times they can be extremely sick. For example, a very advanced state of colic, abdominal upset. They will not show, going back to physiological parameters, they will not show an increase in heart rate. They will not show an increase in respiration because heart and respiration work together. Um, they oftentimes don't show that. A horse that's colicking that has the same condition, their heart rate increases to maybe 60, 80, 100. It stays elevated. Their respiration increases. They start sweating. They're looking at their side. They're kicking up. The donkey's just standing there looking at you, usually eating when it's really in distress or discomfort. And so it does that because, again, it's a survivalist and it comes from a desert where it doesn't know where its food or its water is going to come from. So the donkey will continue to eat, will continue to drink even in these painful states. So going back to the serum amyloid A, um, so we tested that and we found with those donkeys, very low rate of pathogens um, and very low levels of serum amyloid A. We did a second study in Morocco at a veterinary charity hospital called the American Fond Duke. And we looked at horses, mules, and donkeys that all had the same condition. And one of the main conditions they have there is colitis. So bacterial infection, diarrhea. Um, horses that had colitis had an extremely elevated level of this acute phase protein from the liver of serum amyloid A. The donkeys, medium, mules, somewhere in between. So it told us that the inflammatory response or the response to infection is less in a mule and a donkey compared to a horse. 
So that was, to me, was intriguing. So that was one physiological parameter that was different. Um, and again, the other physiological parameters that are different is the heart rate and respiration. Those are usually go-to measurements to look for distress or pain in an equid and even a human. Um, temperature is different mules and donkeys. Donkeys have a much lower temperature than horses. Um, and mules are in between. And that was some research I did on mules um, a couple of years ago that was published. Um, so yes, there, there are some physiological differences. And that's, again, what makes it so interesting to be able to read body language and then look at certain areas on their face, their body stance, and try to pick up on those very subtle differences that oftentimes are expressed more in a horse that's in a painful or discomfort state. And also the, the treatment of that, of that donkey or mule with pain relieving drugs, that's, that's a different uh, process altogether as well. Is that right? Yes. So <laughs> that's another challenge. Um, you know, and that kind of goes back to my initial story about 1988 and the mule foal that was born then, you know, she was not responding to a lot of the medication we were given, giving to her. And she actually had Klebsiella pneumonia, which is a rare form of pneumonia caused by the bacteria Klebsiella. Um, but yes, yeah, so donkeys and mules both metabolize medications, um, much faster than horses do. And um, especially um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So those would be common names, bute or banamine, flinixin or um, phenylbutazone. Um, and then also um, a new um, NASID that's on the market is fibrocoxin, um, known as um, Equiox or um, I'm losing thought on Preva, the dog Prevacox, box. I believe Prevacox. is the, yes. the common, yes. common name. So that's one that a lot of veterinarians are prescribing for um, inflammation, um, joint disease, lameness, things like that to, to, to aid in relieving pain. Well, in donkeys, Prevacox is metabolized three times faster than horses. So that means that if you give one tablet of Prevacox or one or a dose for say a thousand pound horse of Equiox to a horse and you have a 500 pound donkey metabolizes it three times faster, you need to give it at least a dose for a 1500 pound horse um, or you need to give it more frequently. So you give, you administer the medication in the morning, at noon, and then in the evening to even reach that therapeutic level of that medication, starting to reduce the painful response that it's experiencing from whatever the source of pain is, if it's joint-based osteoarthritis, if it's soft tissue, whatever it may be. Um, Butenbanamine are also metabolized at a much quicker rate. Um, mules are somewhere in between. So again, the general rule with bute and banamine is to increase the dose for the size of the donkey compared to the size of the horse. Um, that twice as fast, sometimes three times as fast can, um, can apply. I hate giving out medical information like this um, without knowing the situation because there are some ramifications to overdosing with butyrbanamine and, and that can be liver damage as well as gastric ulcers. And that's why 
prevococcus or the fibrococcus and became so popular was they have not seen in clinical trials in horses. Again, all of these medications are used off-label in donkeys and mules um, because there's little to zero research or um, any to approve them for mules and donkeys, even though they're still used for them. Um, so I really encourage uh, um, donkey and mule owners as well as veterinarians to look at some of the latest information that's out there. And like I said, at AAP three weeks ago, there's a fantastic article in the proceedings on updated, the most relevant information on how to administer Bute, banamine, fibrococcin, even penicillin and um, antibiotics are metabolized different in donkeys and mules. And again, a lot of that goes back to them evolving from a desert. The mule is a unique individual because we don't always know the horse heritage of the mule. So if it's a draft horse, it's going to metabolize slower than say, if it's a thoroughbred. So if it's a thoroughbred mule, it might metabolize even quicker than a mule that's out of a draft mare or out of a quarter horse. So that's what makes it a little bit more challenging to sometimes um, configure the dosage for mules. Um, but the donkeys, yes. And, and there's also some on the antibiotic um, subject, there's some antibiotics that do not work well in donkeys or aren't even actually lethal in donkeys. So again, I, I really encourage people to either look at the vet clinics of North America from 2019, we had a whole book um, that was dedicated to mules and donkeys. There's great information on pharmacology in that edition, as well as uh, the most recent AEP um, donkey and mule um, medicine section. You can get the most up-to-date information on the medication you're looking at um, giving to them. So, uh, you know, so d disclaimer, we're not, we're not recommending these med medications and we're not telling our, our listeners to triple their banamine dosage to their mules. What we are what we are recommending is an open and honest conversation with your veterinarian, and and also I think it's worth mentioning that that veterinarians um, they have a business to run and a practice to run, and, and so they don't always have the luxury of being up to date on the latest and greatest treatments and 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 research papers. So you know if you have a good and you need to have a good relationship with your veterinarian so that when you have information like this, you can go to your veterinarian, you can have a conversation, maybe you can share them, you know, you can share the information or the link to the information, let them read and interpret it. And, and really, if your veterinarian is so set in their ways that they don't want to hear anything new, you need a new veterinarian. I um, cannot agree more, Joe. Um, you know, I make a difficult client when I walk in a vet hospital because I have a lot of this information at my fingertips. And so I, you know, I want to get the best treatment for, for my animal. And I think even in human medicine today, we have to be an advocate for our own healthcare. So if you can just help share with them this current information, I think that will will definitely help them. And, and like you said, if they're not open to the fact that a therapeutic level of some of the various pain medications and even sedating a mule and donkey is different. And <laughs> your, your veterinarian will learn that quite quick if they haven't read up on the correct dosage for sedatives and, and even anesthesia. So um, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. 
Well, um, any other uh, up and coming research projects that uh, you can you can share that's on the horizon for you? Yeah, um, well, since we're on the topic of pharmacology and pharmacokinetics, um, we did a clinical style uh, study this past winter and spring looking at the use of possibly flunixin in a dermal application uh, for donkeys. So um, we hope to have those results and um, hopefully an article published within the next six months or so. Um, there's an approved um, form of banamine for cattle to help with foot rot and, and things like that. There's been one study in thoroughbred horses looking at um, dermally applying this. So you put it on, on their skin and it did have a, um, a positive effect in terms of just looking at the amount of banamine that was circulating in their blood. Um, but we're hoping that this will be possibly another use. And again, it would be off use for this product. Um, but another way that donkey owners themselves could actually treat a donkey that has some type of pain. Um, they could easily administer it by pouring it on their back versus having to administer oral paste or an injectable form, which sometimes, sometimes can be difficult in donkeys. Um, a study we have coming up this spring, um, we're gonna look at a mule castration study. We're gonna do some more um, kind of um, exams looking at using serum amyloid A as a, um, a baseline and um, what the inflammatory responses in mules pre and post castration. We're also looking at creating a facial grimace scale for mules. Um, so that will help provide another tool that people can have in their toolbox for um, looking for pain in the eye of a mule, their ear position, orbital tightening, so the area right above their eyes. Mules and donkeys both have um, a thicker occipital bone compared to horses. And that's an area that oftentimes we'll see pain in horses is in that area. So, um, so we take that into account. Um, there's also different expressions in the nostrils and cheek muscles. So that is a, um, a really exciting study that's actually being sponsored by the Morris Animal Foundation, um, an equine behavior grant that they had, um, they've awarded to us to, to study mule behavior. And we will also use um, a new smart halter that's on the market made by Nightwatch um, that will monitor some of those physiological parameters you were asking me about earlier. Are they different? So we're going to monitor heart rate, respiration, standing, recumbency, and rolling behavior. And we're going to equip the mules with the halter before surgery to get baseline values during surgery. So we'll see how high their heart rate goes up, respiration during the actual surgical procedure. And then we'll also monitor them for 48 hours afterwards. So looking forward to collecting some more physiological data on, again, a, a painful response. Um, and what does that look like in a mule? Um, so that that's coming up. Another um, kind of cool and exciting study I'm looking forward to uh, later in the spring and summer, I have a visiting scholar coming from the City um, University in Hong Kong from their clinical science vet program. He's working on his PhD and he's going to actually be testing um, biomechanics and donkeys and loading and how loading in the stance phase so the stance phase is when there's hoof contact with the ground with the ground so it's the weight bearing stage 
um, the hypothesis is that donkeys actually, um, their hoof interacts in five different locations compared to a horse that loads in three phases and three points. Um, so we're gonna um, put sensors on the donkeys. We're gonna have a control group and then also look at donkeys that have front end lameness and hind end lameness, which will likely take us back to the American Fonduke in Morocco to test. Um, so that should be exciting. We'll learn a little more about basically gait analysis and movement in donkeys and then how we can apply that to trying to distinguish a sound versus an unsound donkey because that goes back to this whole pain assessment and how they can even cover up lameness and I really hope at some point just from personal experience we can apply this to mules as well because they're pretty good at, at hiding a lameness, hiding pain. So, so there's just some upcoming studies on the horizon. Um, the last one I failed to mention is also an enrichment study looking at um, different enrichment tools for horses that are confined to stalls and if there's possibly any difference on how those tools are utilized if a horse has gastric ulcers or not, which could possibly um, be um, a pre um, predispose them to then stereotypies. So that's another study that's also happening. Oh, wow, that could that could revolutionize <laughs> the horse show, the reigning horse and the cutting horse and the Western pleasure world because our our horses spend so much time locked up in a box stall, and 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 the ulcers are just they're they're the plague of of the show horse world. Um, and so if, if there's things that we can do, oh my gosh, that, that could be, that could be amazing. Congratulations on, on getting to be part of that. Yeah, thank you. Um, student that was working on that study actually came to me from the zoo world. Um, used to work for the American Zoo Association and just had a really strong interest in enrichment. And, um, I was like, you know, why not? You know, again, we've taken an animal that used to spend from a time budget standpoint, 16 to 18 hours of their day grazing, eating small meals. Now we've domesticated them and confined them and they eat maybe twice a day, maybe three times a day, four times a day if they're living in Europe. But you know what? Their, their gastrointestinal tract has not changed. And then on top of that, we've maybe added exercising at a high level, spending more time at a trot or a gallop, which again, they would not do in the wild. They would only spend a very small amount of time, maybe at a trot, maybe at a canter. So, but they still have the same insides. So uh, yeah, I'm, gastric ulcers really intrigue me. And I, I think a lot of our mules actually have more ulcers than we know. And so I've been, I'm dying to do a gastric ulcer study on mules. We haven't done it yet, um, but so we're gonna we're gonna start with the horses and maybe trying to look for some of these um, behaviors that set them up for them maybe stereotypies because they don't get the graze all day long, or they do have a pain or discomfort so they're trying to overcome that by soothing and coping. Wow, that that's just absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Dr. McLean. I, I really appreciate you making the time to visit with us. Um, how can how can our listeners find? more about you and what you're doing. How do, how do we get in touch with your information um, at UC Davis? Um, you know, I, I guess you can email me um, and I can type that in the chat, ACMcLean at ucdavis.edu. Um, 
yeah, that's probably the best way to get in touch with me. There's also, there's a couple of um, online adult education courses that are coming up starting in January that are open to the public through our continuing um, education professional development. Um, do you have to be, do you have to be registered with UC Davis or can, can anyone in any state take part in that? Anyone in any state, anywhere in the world can take part in them. They're online courses. They will be recorded in case you have to go to the barn and ride or something like that. Um, they're open to the public just to help, to help share science-based information with the equine community. Um, so those courses are available too, and I can send you a link for that information as well. But people yes, are always please welcome. do. We will. Yeah, we will. We will absolutely post that on the Horse Sense uh, uh, website and 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 our Facebook group page. Um, thank you again so much, Dr. McLean. It's been an absolute honor to have you on our show. Well, thank you, Joe, for the opportunity. I, I believe in what you're doing. It's great for the equine community. We have to keep learning. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for joining me on Horse Sense 101, a podcast dedicated to helping you have that meaningful relationship with your horse you always wanted to have. Please tell your horsey friends about us and invite them to join us on our Facebook group, Horse Sense 101, and every Monday for our podcast available at 6 a.m. Mountain Time. I'd like to thank you, my listeners, members, and Dr. Amy McLean. God bless you and have a wonderful week. Eagle soars above the pinion pines And we know these horses stand for something That is precious and more rare Than all the silver and the gold from them old mines So let them run Let them run Let them wild ponies run don't you brand them, don't you break them Don't you let the killers take a single one Let them run In a world where fences scar the earth from sun to rising sun There's still a few proud places